Welcome to the first episode of the Crime Corrupt Podcast, a spine-chilling look into some horrific cases. I'm your host, Elijah. Let's get into it. So today we're starting off with a case that I personally have been interested in for years, pretty much ever since I got into true crime. It's a very intriguing case, but it's also a really sad case because it's been unsolved for over 60 years. And that upsets me on many levels because it involves a child. So before we get into today's episode, a quick reminder that I release new episodes every weekend, depending on the kind of case, it'll either be one day or both days. Unless, of course, I state that I will not be releasing an episode because of something. But without further ado, let's get into the mysterious death of the boy in the box. Warning. This episode contains mentions of physical and sexual abuse, as well as violence against children and neglectful parenting. If any of these things cause you stress, I would recommend not listening to this particular episode. Thank you. On February 25th, 1957, the body of a young boy was discovered on the side of the road in a cardboard box. Initially, the boy was discovered by a man who did not come forward to the police, as he did not want his muskrat traps to be seized. A few days after this, Frank Guthrum, a university student, noticed a rabbit running into the undergrowth in the woodland. With the knowledge that there were animal traps in the region, he stopped his car to make sure the rabbit was okay, and he too discovered the boy in the box. Guthrum, like the man previously, was hesitant to have any communication with the police, but he did report it to them the next day. The boy's corpse was wrapped in a plaid blanket and was discovered in the woodlands off a fox chase in Philadelphia. The unclothed body was within a cardboard box which had previously contained a bassinet sold by J.C. Penny. This box was a key detail in the case and it led to the police concluding that the box itself had been sent to Philadelphia So this was an in-state crime, and not a case of border crossing to throw the authorities off. The child's hair had been recently cut, most likely post-mortem, as clumps of hair were found on the body and inside the box. There were indications of critical malnourishment, along with surgical scars on his ankle and groin, and an L-shaped scar beneath his chin. So, the information that we have so far is that this is a crime that definitely happened in Philadelphia. Like, so basically, the police tracked the manufacturing code to the JCPenney where this bassinet was purchased. However, unfortunately, all 12 of these purchases, there were 12 bassinets of this type purchased in this JCPenney, but they were all made in cash, so the police had no digital or physical evidence to say these purchases ever happened. Fortunately, eight of those 12 purchases came forward to say that they still had the box, or they'd thrown the boxes out. So the police were able to conclude, after looking at the delivery points from this JCPenney, which they obviously had evidence of, they concluded that the box had been delivered to Philadelphia. They didn't have an address, but they knew it was Philadelphia. So, with this information, they launched an investigation on February 26th, 1957, a day after they found the box, with the boy inside, of course. They took the boy's fingerprints, and police were confident that the boy would soon be named, that they would know who he was. 
Unfortunately, no one ever came forward with any beneficial information, and the fingerprints never led anywhere. Which could mean a number of things, the main theory being that his fingerprints weren't in the database, which either would be because he was a home birth, so the parents had no need to take him to the hospital, or because he was an orphan, or a foster child, which comes into the case later. As most cases do, this case enticed considerable media interest in Philadelphia and the Delaware Valley. The Philadelphia Inquirer published 400,000 flyers illustrating the boy's likeness, which were sent out and posted throughout the area, and were incorporated with every gas bill in Philadelphia. The crime scene was searched repeatedly by 270 police academy recruits, who discovered a man's blue corduroy cap, a child's scarf, and a man's white handkerchief with the letter G in the corner, which all turned out to be clues that eventually led nowhere. The police also dispersed a post-mortem photograph of the boy fully dressed in a seated position, in the optimism that it might have led to a clue. Regardless of the publicity interest throughout the years, the boy's identity is still anonymous. The case continues to be unresolved to this day. With all this information, let's look at a few theories. There are a considerable number of theories, so I've decided to narrow it down to the three that make the most sense. Our first theory concerns the boy being a foster child or an orphan. The police did forensic facial reconstruction to show what the boy may have looked like when he was alive, and the results concern a foster home that was located approximately 1.5 miles or 2.5 kilometers from the site of the body. In 1960, Remington Bristow, an employee of the medical examiner's office who pursued the case until his death in 1993, contacted a New Jersey psychic who told him to look for a house that matched the foster home. When the psychic was brought to the Philadelphia Discovery site, she led Bristow directly to the foster home. On attending an estate sale at the foster home, Bristow discovered a bassinet similar to the one sold at J.C. Penney. He also discovered blankets hanging on the clothesline that were like the one in which the boy's body had been wrapped in when they discovered him. Bristow believed that the boy belonged to the stepdaughter of the man who ran the foster home, and that they had disposed of his body so that the stepdaughter would not be exposed as an unwed mother. He theorized that the boy's death had been an accident. Despite this circumstantial evidence, the police were not able to find any determinate links between the boy in the box and the foster family. Another point of this theory is that the man who ran the foster home most likely married the stepdaughter. I'm pretty sure that's true, but I could be wrong, and I couldn't find any websites that confirm this, but I'm pretty sure that he had married his stepdaughter. So the theory is that the stepdaughter was his the stepdaughter and him had the boy, and then like the theory says, he died accidentally and they disposed of him, so that no one would be like, that's kinda weird, you know? because marrying your stepdaughter is a very weird thing to do, especially in the 60s. In 1998, Philadelphia Police Lieutenant Tom Augustine, who was in charge of the investigation and several members of the Be Dutch Society, a group of retired policemen and profilers, interviewed the foster father and the stepdaughter, whom he had married. The foster home investigation was closed. I completely forgot I put that information in here, but yeah, he had married his stepdaughter. Which is a very weird thing to do, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure you just don't marry your stepchild. And also, I'm pretty sure I butchered the name of that society. It's French, so I apologize. 
that I, I've absolutely butchered the pronunciation. I am so sorry. But yeah, that th- I that theory is pretty solid. That this kid could have been could have been the child of this man and his stepdaughter, and then they disposed of his body after he died because they didn't want people to see the taboo behind it because again like i said before marrying your stepchild is a very very weird thing to do <laughs> our second theory was brought forward in february 2002 by a woman identified only as martha police considered martha's story to be plausible but were troubled by her testimony as she had a history of mental illness martha or m claimed that her abusive mother had purchased the unknown boy whose name was Jonathan, from his birth parents in the summer of 1954. Subsequently, the boy was subjected to extreme physical and sexual abuse for two and a half years. One evening at dinner, the boy vomited up his meal of baked beans and was given a severe beating, with his head slammed against the floor until he was semi-conscious. He was given a bath, during which he died. These details matched information known only to the police, as the coroner had found that the boy's stomach contained remains of baked beans and that his fingers were water-wrinkled. So immediately with this theory, you can immediately be like, okay, so this theory is definitely plausible because she knew about the baked beans and the water-wrinkle. Obviously not the water-wrinkle, but she knew about the bath. So this theory is definitely plausible, but there is a lot of speculation because she had a history of mental illness But I mean, I don't really think that you can use that as, oh, she's lying because of the mental illness, because she knew things that only the police and the coroner knew. So this is a definitely, definite plausible theory. M's mother cut the boy's distinctively long hair, accounting for the unprofessional haircut the police had noted in their initial investigation in an effort to conceal his identity. M's mother forced M to assist her in dumping the boy's body in the fox chase area. M said that as they were preparing to remove the boy's body from the trunk of the car, a passing male motorist pulled alongside to inquire whether they needed help. M was ordered to stand in front of the car's license plate to shield it from view, while her mother convinced the would-be good Samaritan that there was no problem. The man eventually drove off. This story corroborated confidential testimony given by a male witness in 1957, who said that the body had been placed in a box previously discarded at the scene. So immediately, this woman has detailed information of the case. She knew she knew what the boy had eaten, about the bath, about the haircut, about the box, and about the location of where he was dumped. So this is a, like I said before, very plausible theory which, I mean, I lean more towards this theory out of all of them, but that's just my opinion. Despite the plausibility of Martha's confession, police were unable to verify her story. Neighbours who had access to Martha's house during the stated time period denied that there had been any young boy living there and dismissed Martha's claims as ridiculous. You see, I don't like that bit because they very easily could have hit him. They very easily could have hit the boy, but of course... I don't know their official statements. So, and like we said before, Martha has a history of uh, mental illness, which could mean that she 
isn't making this up, but that she's come up with this idea because she wants to help, but it's not helping. But like I said before, this is a very plausible theory because you don't just magically guess the food that this child had eaten. You don't magically guess that he had water-wrinkled fingers because he had a bath, and you don't magically guess that he had an unprofessional haircut. It's just... It's 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 too circumstantial for this to just be the the made up in a workings of someone with mental illness. It just doesn't it doesn't feel that way. Like it very much could be. I'm not saying it isn't, but at the same time it's like this is too coincidence coincidental for her to just have made this up. Our last theory for the day concerns forensic artist Frank Bender, who developed a theory that the victim may have been raised as a girl. The child's unprofessional haircut, which appeared to have been performed in haste, was the basis for the scenario, as well as the appearance of the eyebrows having been styled. In 2008, Bender released a sketch of the unidentified child with long hair, reflecting the strands found on the body. Apparently, nothing came of this, but it can still be considered an ongoing theory, as it hasn't been disproven or debunked. So, now that we've got through all the theories, Personally, I lean towards the Martha theory. She's got all this information about this kid. She knows things that only someone who would have known about this, someone who was either the coroner or a police officer would have known. The baked beans, the water wrinkled fingers, the haircut, just everything. She has all this information. And she also knows about the blunt force trauma. She didn't state that specifically, but she said the kid himself, he was slammed into the floor until he was semi-conscious and then bathed, which killed him. So she could, she stated that the child was, had his head slammed down, which could account for the blunt force trauma, as well as the other physical injuries if he had been physically and sexually abused by this mother. So it's a very plausible theory. However, the foster home theory is also very possible. It accounts for why his fingerprints didn't lead anywhere, the parents being the man who owned the foster home and his stepdaughter trying to hide this unwed mother and the taboo of him marrying his stepdaughter would mean that they would never risk taking this kid to the hospital or having him or having him at a hospital in a controlled environment. It would make sense that they chose to have him at home and then didn't take him to the hospital ever to have his fingerprints done because they wouldn't want people to know that this man slept with his stepdaughter, which then resulted in an illegitimate child. So yeah, that those are my, my the main two theories that I lean towards, mainly the Martha theory because of all the information she had, but I could also lean towards the foster home theory. But all in all, this is a very sad case. It is honestly depressing to think about that we will probably never know who this child is. Um, he currently has a grave. He is buried in Philadelphia and his grave is marked unidentified American child. I'm pretty sure that's what it's labeled as, but it's just a very, a very depressing case. And it's, it's very upsetting to think that this is a little boy who had his entire life taken away from him. But you may have your own theories, and if you do, you can contact me on social media at CrimeCryptUK, or you can email us at CrimeCryptUK at gmail.com. 
you can also request cases the same way. For example, if there is a, a, a recent unsolved case or a missing persons case or an unsolved murder, please contact us. Now, in the case of either serial killers or unsolved cases that were eventually solved, those cases will be reserved for special events, I guess? So, for example, maybe on my birthday, I will cover a serial killer case. Or at least the week of my birthday. Maybe on Halloween, I'll cover some serial killer cases. I'll work out when, but I will cover serial killer cases very rarely because they have been overdone and they are cases that are solved and there are other cases in detention because there are other cases that are actually unsolved and that people need solved. So yeah, that's where I'm going to wrap up today's episode. Thank you guys for joining me for the first episode of the Crime Crypt podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever it is that you listen. But that is it from me. Thank you guys again, and I will see you next time. Bye-bye.